0: Hello and welcome to the Stuck Brain Podcast, all things mental health with a different approach. We look at the research, but we also discuss real life experience. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Stuck Brain Podcast. I am your host, Eric Osterland, and in this episode, I have a co-host named Pinky. She is a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. If you want to know more about her, you can go to the stuckbrainpodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to our podcast. Today we have an exciting episode. We are going to talk about the history of psychiatry. The main point of this episode is to talk about where psychiatry was, how much it has changed, and where it is possibly going in the future. So we're going to start with the history. Pinky, do you mind starting that off and telling us about the history of psychiatry?
1: Absolutely, I'd love to. So the specialty of psychiatry originated in the early 1800s. And for the first hundred years of the specialty, treatment was really limited to asylums or institutionalization. And this consisted mainly of patients that were psychotic manic or depressed, or perhaps suffered from medical conditions such as brain tumors or seizures that at the time weren't easily explained by medical causes. So families with family members experiencing these serious mental illnesses started placing their family members into institutions and asylums for care. So, when psychiatry first started and for the first hundred years of it, there was actually no outpatient practice. And doctors in psychiatry were called asylum doctors. And neurologists treated nervous conditions in an outpatient basis.
0: That is so interesting. So, there's no outpatient, it was just grandma's acting a little weird. Let's go get her locked up kind of feeling.
1: Yeah, if it was someone who was experiencing psychotic symptoms, manic episodes, they tended to lean towards asylums and institutions. And if it was someone who was somewhat functioning in society, but having some problems with their emotions, they were kind of labeled as having a nerve disorder. At the time, they thought something was scrambled with your nerve endings, and it made sense to have neurologists treat you on an outpatient basis. Okay. So it wasn't until the 20th century when Freud published his theories on the unconscious roots of these less severe disorders, such as depression and anxiety. And soon after publishing these theories of the less severe disorders, like depression and anxiety, he developed psychoanalysis to treat what they called neurotic patients at the time. So psychiatry was kind of split into two fields psychosis where there was schizophrenia, manic depression, and then neurosis, where depression, anxiety, and some of the other common disorders fell into. And psychoanalysis was really embraced. It really was the first outpatient treatment offered in psychiatry to patients with mental health disorders. But the evolution of psychoanalysis also caused a split in the field. Now, all of a sudden, you had biological psychiatry and and then also psychotherapy. And today we still see this split between biological psychiatry where you have psychiatrists treating with medications and you have clinical psychologists treating with psychotherapy.
0: That is so interesting. I kind of want to talk about the inpatient psychiatry and how unregulated it was back then. And there's some pretty bad horror stories of people being basically committed, locked up because a family says they're crazy. Or there's cases where people were locked up because they spoke a different language and they just assumed that they were psychotic. And so they would just keep them in the hospital for a long period of time. Now that's somewhat changed. Now we have the balance kind of going more back to the client, which is good. So now if somebody is experiencing a mental health crisis, at least in California, we can put them on a what is called a 5150 or an involuntary hold, and then they can go into an inpatient facility. We can only keep them there for 72 hours unless we write a 5250 hold, which is a 14-day hold. But what's nice is the state came in to advocate for the clients. They make them have a PCH hearing, a probable cause hearing. And that's a hearing that the client gets to defend their side of it. So Basically, psychiatry, doctors, nurses can't abuse the clients. They can't say, oh, you're crazy. I'm going to lock you up for forever. The actual state comes in. They have a PCH. They have a judge representative. And the client gets to state their side. And I've seen in real life, I've seen where the client does win, right? The the state looks at them right. and says, no, you're able to take care of yourself. You're good to go. You get to be discharged if you want to leave. So that balance went that way. Some people argue that the balance went too much on the side of the client because for a while we weren't even able to report if somebody was homicidal. And that's now kind of changed. We're allowed to skate the line of HIPAA if they are going to hurt somebody because that's, right. you know, that's important to stop that. But it's interesting how it's changed. Back in the day, they didn't even have that. They would just put you in the hospital. There was no representation they can medicate you against your will. Now we have, we need consents to be medicated in the hospital. If you don't sign the consents, then you have to go to the doctor and the client go to court to see if they can conserve you or give you medications against your own will. So there's a little bit of checks and balances more than there used to be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And institutionalization was so big in the 19th century. That was pretty much the only form of treatment that was known in psychiatry. There weren't a lot of medications around. There weren't treatment options the way we have today. And so actually, the average length of stay in a state mental facility in the early 1900s was 11 years. Can you believe that?
0: 11 years. That's a long time.
1: Yeah, that is a very long time. And then, you know, it, it wasn't until the 50s and the 60s where a new medication called Thorazine and others like it were introduced into the market, which significantly improved the psychotic symptoms of patients institutionalized. And this, over the years, caused the state institutions to rapidly empty. And it was actually called the deinstitutionalization movement. And because of the introduction of these medications, patients started being treated more and more on an outpatient basis.
0: Wow. So the shift went from inpatient to then outpatient were probably cheaper, safer for the client because they're not locked up in a facility all the time. The client has more freedom to do what they want, which is good and bad.
1: Yeah. You know, it really depends on the client and their presenting symptoms So, you know, if we go back to the psychotic and nervous disorders, for, for someone that isn't experiencing psychosis, is able to function on a daily basis, but experiencing emotional distress, it might be a lot more distressing to put them into an asylum or institution where they are locked up and don't have their freedom. The initial intention of asylums and institutions was to provide a safe therapeutic space for patients to heal. I think the problem at the time was there just weren't that many treatment options. Once you have the client in the institution, what do you do? And a lot of times patients were just locked up and there wasn't a lot of progress happening. Probably that what was what was contributing to the 11-year average length of stay.
0: Wow, that's 11 years. I still can't quite get over that. I-
1: yeah, I'm completely flabbergasted.
0: Yeah. I know now sometimes being admitted into an inpatient hospital can be a traumatizing event in itself for those that don't really need it. Let's say they're going through a hard time. They say something loosely related to they're going to hurt themselves. And then all of a sudden they find themselves at an inpatient hospital. They're high functioning and they don't necessarily need to be there. I know we're starting to change that because when I worked in the ER, we had tons of clients in the ER waiting to be placed into a hospital that eh, it was kind of borderline. Did they really need to go? Did they not? But because we live in such a litigious society, the person that's right in the hold was like, I'm going to write the hold because that's the safest thing to do, whether the person needs right. it or not. I know there's some new industry that's coming in and they're starting to work plans around how to prevent that from happening.
1: Yeah, and and I think that's what makes psychiatry a little bit more complicated than some of the other specialties is you have patients that might be experiencing psychotic symptoms, maybe a danger to themselves or others, but we don't want to violate anyone's basic rights and freedoms, right? But I've also seen the opposite, like you were saying, where there are clients that are having a little bit of trouble, but don't really need to be locked down into a secure unit. You know, there's absolutely something to be said about having those basic freedoms and choices taken away from you, and and that can be counterproductive as well. So, you know, I'm not sure how effective institutionalization is. Perhaps it just depends on what's going on with the client at the moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's talk about an interesting topic, lobotomies.
1: Okay. What would you like to talk about?
0: Obviously, we don't do them anymore. Can you tell us what, they're, what they are and how they were created?
1: In the early 20th century, the number of patients living in mental health hospitals significantly increased. And physicians were trying to find treatment options to alleviate that burden. So sometime in the early 1900s lobotomies were invented. Lobotomies had different approaches depending on the psychiatrist, but mainly they would go into the prefrontal cortex or the frontal lobe of the brain and they would take a section out or sever connections within the brain. And they thought that this would contribute to an alleviation of any psychotic or even emotional symptoms. Now, that definitely was the case. They did see clients experiencing less emotionally severe symptoms, but they also experienced a decrease in their personality and also a decrease in their intellect. Some of the physicians made notes as far as, you know, their their patients just weren't the same, and this this came at a cost. Many clients committed suicide as a result or became even more depressed in the years later after lobotomy. So in, actually in 1949, the physician that invented lobotomies received a Nobel Prize for his work in physiology, but there were a lot of physicians that were against it and claimed that it was barbaric. The thought that going in surgically and intentionally damaging an organ in your body was probably not therapeutic and probably would not have good results. So it, it definitely was not a widely accepted treatment. But at the time, it was, you know, one of the only treatments available. And they, we really didn't know what else to do.
0: Yeah. And that's why today we see it as barbaric and we would never do a lobotomy because it just impacts their quality of life. I mean, they can't really live life. They're just kind of there walking around and it's considered inhumane. It's interesting, though, right. that at the time we thought it was the great thing to do. And it makes me ask the question, and I know Pinky, you and I have talked about this offline. What are we doing today that in 20, 30 years, we're going to be like, oh, why did we ever think to do that? I'm always constantly in my, the back of my mind going, how are we going to look at this treatment in 20 to 30 years? Are we going to say it's barbaric? Are we going to say it was appropriate for that time? How are we going to look at it?
1: Yeah. And, and I think You know, we can only do the best we can, use the scientific process to complete experiment studies, try to replicate results, and we can only do the best we can in time. I think that's, you know, medicine is not an exact science, and that's probably always going to be the case in any specialty of medicine. We look back and think, oh, I can't believe we used to do that. Like, uh, you know, we used to use leeches, for certain medical conditions. People probably some people probably think that's barbaric today.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And we used to do insulin shock therapy back in the day. We don't do that anymore. Do you know much about that?
1: I don't know too much, but I do know that it was theorized that schizophrenia and epilepsy are opposite disorders. So they thought that causing seizure activity in patients with schizophrenia or other types of psychosis may be therapeutic and help alleviate those psychotic symptoms and that's where insulin therapy insulin shock therapy kind of came about so you you give a client a psychotic client insulin you drop their blood sugar to the level where they go into a seizure and that the thought was that the seizure activity would heal the brain and it initially muted symptoms and honestly from my reading and from the gut feeling i get it seems that psychotic patients after shock therapy, just became easier to manage because of the muting of all their symptoms. They were easy to manage by doctors, by their families. So there was even something I read where a woman that received insulin shock therapy, her husband said she doesn't talk as much, she doesn't say as much or do as much, but at least I don't have to run around trying to make sure, make sure she's safe all the time. So although it came with the cost of a person's personality and intellect, the point was that that person became easier to manage by their families in everyday life.
0: Yeah. And that's interesting. That's another part of psychiatry that I think is changing. We used to measure the outcomes on how we manage them. And that's starting to change. Now we're looking at what's the, the client's quality of life, their quality of life, not my quality of life not you know the family member taking care of the of the individual what's the actual patient's quality of life where before it was all about management oh i don't have to spend as much time with the client therefore this treatment is better like if i give somebody a lobotomy they're going to walk around super slow and not do anything crazy so i don't have to spend resources to watch them and that's a different way to measure it so i think even in psychiatry that's starting to change
1: Absolutely. I think the focus now is more on, like you said, quality of life, ensuring that the client is happy with their treatment and achieving the goals that they have set out for themselves and not a, you know, everyday run of the mill. You know, this is the, these are the checkboxes we want you to take off. This is what we want you to look like. It's, it's more engaging the client and their goals and vision of what their future is like.
0: Yeah, which overall is a positive way to look at it instead of, you know, the opposite, trying to get them to fit into a box and be more manageable.
1: Right, right.
0: Let's talk about ECT. That was started a long time ago, I think in 1938. And it's interesting to me because I don't know tons about it. I've never actually practiced it or prescribed it, but it is still done. I know some physicians still do this. Do you know more about it?
1: ECT is electroconvulsive therapy. I do know that ACT is considered to be very effective still till this day. It's probably the most long-lasting treatment that's been around in psychiatry. It's thought to be the safest procedure or treatment for pregnant women because you're not introducing any medications into the body. It's, It's not acting as a teratogen to the baby. It has its risks associated with it as well, and it's more Surrounding memory loss and, and, again, muting of your personality, muting of those symptoms. Now, I've, I've known people who have done ECT and felt like it was extremely effective. But a lot of them will tell me that the gap in their memory caused as a side effect from the ECT is, is pretty distressing.
0: And what does that look like?
1: So it actually looks much better today than it did several decades ago. They place two electrodes on either side of your head or on the front and back of your head, depending on the on the method that they're using. And the electrodes deliver a small current into your brain, which contributes to the improvement of psychiatric symptoms.
0: Yeah, and it causes the brain to have a seizure type activity.
1: Yeah, it's like a mini seizure, but they do give clients a muscle blocker. So that your body isn't actually seizing. It's just the electrical activity is just occurring within the brain.
0: So I've had a lot of feedback because I do have several clients that have tried ECT in the past. Some say it is very helpful, like we talked about. Yeah, it actually did help me. Others say the event that you're talking about where they they can't remember the history, Mm -hmm. that that sometimes is distressing. And they explain it to me like if you went out and had several drinks and you blacked out, And then you have that anxiety about what happened in that time period. So there's some clients that I wouldn't recommend it because of the anxiety associated with not remembering what happened.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like that would create a whole new set of symptoms on its own.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. It's really interesting that we still do it to this day.
1: We don't have a lot of treatments around that are very effective for treatment-resistant depression. So. You know, ECT is still around for people who are experiencing that severe mental illness and and need that relief where they haven't found anywhere else.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not a first choice for anxiety, depression. It's definitely not.
1: Correct, yeah. I would feel comfortable saying it's more of a last resort choice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, me too.
1: And then instead of ECT, luckily, new treatment options were developed in the 1980s. In 1987, Prozac was introduced, and it was the first SSRI. So SSRI is Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. And it was hypothesized that in patients who are experiencing anxiety and depression, there's a lack of serotonin or serotonin utilization, and medications like Prozac and other SSRIs go into the brain and improve the use of serotonin in the brain. This medication was better tolerated and medically safer than other antidepressants that had been used in the past, namely tricyclic antidepressants that could cause heart side effects and overdose would be fatal.
0: Yeah. And then they also had the MAOI inhibitors, but those could cause a hypertensive crisis because they interact with so many things, other medications
1: and food. There was, there was such a big diet restriction with MAOIs, and I think that was the main reason that clinicians tended to avoid prescribing them.
0: So since Prozac came out, we've had a ton released, a lot of SSRIs that have come out since then.
1: And around the time, a little soon after Prozac came out, the first atypical antipsychotic, which is Risperdal and then followed by Zyprexa and some of the other ones, came out. And these medications were considered generally safer than their earlier counterparts like Thorazine and Haldol. And some of those medications had a lot of side effects like QT prolongation, weight gain, and these newer atypical antipsychotics were seen as medically safer. Although as the years went on, we saw that they also contribute to weight gain, metabolic syndrome, hair loss, impotence, and orgasmia. So, these medications haven't been the great answer to psychiatry either.
0: Correct. A lot of side effects. And some of them are kind of detrimental side effects. Like the individual will be three, 400 pounds by the end of treatment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, do I want to feel normal, have normal emotions and thought regulations? But along with that, I get to deal with diabetes and weight gain and hi- hypertension and and it didn't seem like a fair trade-off.
0: Yeah. And then plus, sometimes psychosis is temporary. Like, I know people that were in college and had a psychotic break because they were staying up 72 hours studying for exams on tons of caffeine, right. and then they have some kind of psychotic episode. We put them on a atypical antipsychotic, and then there is some correlation that if we start them up on that a, antipsychotic the longer they're on that antipsychotic, the more dependent they're going to be on it. Like if you pull it away, then they're going to end up having more psychosis down the road.
1: That's right. And so the practice generally became once someone experienced psychotic symptoms, you put them on an antipsychotic and you keep them on it for the rest of their life in fear of another psychotic episode. Or we really thought that as soon as they stopped that antipsychotic the psychotic symptoms would return. Yeah. The other thing antipsychotics did was, like I said earlier, mute your personality. Like people would have a blunted affect. Their thought process were were slower. They couldn't quite engage in conversation or contribute to society in a functional way. So that was also the cost of those antipsychotics.
0: Yeah, for the general public. I mean, I've seen them used in inpatient, so with acute clients that are chronically ill and I've seen a lot of success stories with them. So I'm not opposed to medications. They just need to be appropriate. So if it's a first time psychosis, why, why did that happen? Were they up studying? Were they abusing substances like methamphetamines and staying up to study? You want to know the why? Because I have seen some of those medications really help with chronic individuals.
1: And I think this is kind of the point in all this about the history of psychiatry is, with every treatment, we've learned a lot about what clients need. And I think what we've learned the most is that each client is different. Client A with manic depressive could be presenting completely different than client B with manic depression. And their needs are different, and so their treatment approaches should be different. There's not a blanket answer such as ECT or insulin shock therapy or lobotomy for all patients. It makes sense that when you have different presentations of symptoms, you have different needs and you may require different therapeutic approaches to find that healing.
0: And I think measuring it, like we talked about differently now, instead of is it benefiting the provider or society? Or is it benefiting the person? I think measuring it slightly different is better, the outcome.
1: Yeah. And being able to measure those outcomes is important. And that is kind of what brought CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, into the limelight over the last few decades, is CBT kind of standardized a treatment approach to help clients realize their cognitive distortions or inner narratives that they've been working with, and it's helped them cope with those internal thoughts and and behaviors that manifest from those
0: narratives. So if we could start them with therapy first, and then that works, then we don't have to introduce a medication.
1: Exactly. I hope that we're starting to bridge that gap between medication and therapy, and we're, we're... More and more, we're starting to see that they're being used in conjunction. And and studies show over and over that medications and therapy together will result in better outcomes for clients than either one alone.
0: Yeah. And that makes sense just on a logical level. You know, adding the talk therapy around it is going to help and give you some strategies to deal with the coping and deal with the stress and hearing things and seeing things.
1: You're right. It's not as simple as taking a pill. The pill doesn't make everything go away. You know, there are things that need to be worked through and, you know, adjusted to achieve a better quality of life. I think the main takeaway from the history of psychiatry is that not one treatment option is a blanket answer for everyone. And it really is about working with each individual client To find the treatment option that works for them.
0: Absolutely. And psychiatry is evolving. We're learning and we're growing as we go through it.
1: And I'm hoping that as psychiatry continues, we will find more effective, accessible, and cost-effective treatment solutions for the most common mental health disorders. Listeners, if you have something to add, a treatment option we haven't mentioned, something that has worked for you, or anything you'd like to share with us, feel free to Reach out and let us know what's on your mind.
0: Once again, thank you for listening to our podcast. And those of you that have taken time to leave reviews and contact us through Instagram, thank you. You can see the show notes at stuckbrainpodcast.com. You can also visit us on Instagram at stuckbrainpodcast, and you can leave what topics you want to hear next.